Thank you, guys. Thank you. Now, Margaret, you just turned 91. Is that right? 91 years old. I, I almost thought I, you were going to come up and start dancing with that last song. I, <laughs> praise God. Praise God. Where we're at in life about this place is that uh, no matter the age, no matter where we're at in life, God brings us together through all kinds of different circumstances, all different kinds of music, together in the Spirit of God to worship Him. And I think it is just a wonderful, wonderful thing that we can celebrate our God in so many diverse ways. And so I hope that you, you today, your, your spirit has been led into the place that you need to come so that God's Word can minister to you. Why don't you turn with me uh, to the book of Romans, the second chapter. If you do not have a Bible, raise your hand and Doug will get a Bible to you. But Romans, the second chapter, we're going to start with the 17th verse. Mitch and Carrie never know uh, how important that song was uh, about the light. Um, I just never, they'll never, they'll never know um, just what that song meant uh, to the pastor of this church. Uh, because going through the book, the second chapter of Romans, we're of course in the area where, where Paul is talking to a very judgmental church. He's talking to the Jewish people that... Um, have been living in superiority over the world around them instead of living as a light to the world, which they were called to from the Old Testament, they were living uh, in superiority over it. And, they, uh, um, uh, and so they, in the book of Romans, the second chapter, Paul is trying to say to them, um, yes, you're chosen of God, but... Um, Stop judging. Start loving. Lay down um, your own rightness and pick up the righteousness of the one who died for you. Because he is the one. You've been judging, and yet in your own heart you do the same thing. He is a perfect judge. He knows your deeds. He plays no favorites. And he knows the motive of your heart. And in this passage that we're going now, he hits the Jewish listener right where they live. He is stripping away the religious false security that they have been living under. Resting on a security that is from the outside instead of from a change of the heart. God said in Deuteronomy uh, 7, uh, the 7th through the 8th verse. The Lord did not set his affections on you, Jewish people, and choose you because you were more numerous than other people, or that you had it together. For you were fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. Jesus picks that up and he says in John 15, he says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. We so 
search for security. I just, again, I, you should have just been up here. Because, you know, Taylor Swift thought that her security was in the applause, was, was in money, was in the houses they owned, was in all these kind of things. And yet she came to a place of realizing that there is no security there. And I know you young people are starting out and you hear words like, well, you know, we're not going to get married until we make sure we have enough money. Or we're not going to never have had enough money. Um, parents of children, how has that worked for you? Never have had enough money for children, have we? <laughs> I, you know, and, and if we rest in the security of what comes from the outside, we're going to miss it. We're going to miss it. And that is what this passage is talking about. And what Paul is trying to say is there is an absolute security, but it's not something that you're going to find from the outside in. It's something that you're going to find from the inside out. And so he comes away and he, he really answers the question, what is true security, by first answering what's not. And if today God moves in a way that you hear in your heart Maybe some areas that you have been looking for security. I pray that the Lord will strip that away today and you'll find true security in the one who is. Um, the Jewish people believed, like many today, that since God chose them, they must be a pretty special people. And that, that makes them good. And a good God would not destroy his creation. I think it's funny that even like when prophets would come in the old and they would prophesy destruction against Jerusalem, they would not accept that like the prophet Jeremiah. They would almost, they would see him as heretical because how could God ever, ever destroy his people? Because we're the chosen people. We're good because we're chosen. And yet... The powerlessness of that kind of false religion life is there's no transform, transformation in it. A life that brings the bar of God's righteousness down to our level uh, never needs the power of the gospel to give them rebirth. All they know is that their security is that they're good enough in of themselves. I believe in God, but their lives are not changed. We live in a world of, that they talk about systemic racism. If people were born in a certain class and a certain color, um, and they have a built-in racism that they said is superior over other races. And we must repent of being born the color that we are and submit ourselves to other races. Whether this is true or not, we have to ask our own selves how we have lived our lives. But in Paul's day, it was absolutely true the arrogance and the superiority of the Jewish people um, was incredible. And the persecution, the people that were chasing Paul around as Judaizers proved the fact that they, what he was speaking about with the gospel was something they totally did not agree with. And they were, they were chasing him to try to destroy that which he was trying to show them the truth to. In fact, they were so arrogant that they thought that the Messiah was coming strictly to conquer Rome, destroy the Gentile dogs, and rule over his superior race, the Jews. But here comes, before Paul, here comes John the Baptist, and he comes and he says this to the Jews. He says, you think, do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. 
I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. And Jesus himself said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many mere miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So Paul, picking up this theme from the Old Testament and moving forward even from John the Baptist to Jesus himself, comes in this portion of Romans and he is trying to strip away all the false securities in that people can hold on to that the people in that time. And so let's go ahead and pick it up in Scripture. Now let's hear his words and let's just walk away. First of all, the first stripping that he does is the stripping of false identity. Listen to it in verse 17 through 20. Now if you... Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Identity becomes that which everything else is built off from. You and I are living out our identity every day, and it either draws us closer to God and others, or it separates us. In regards to the Jewish people, Paul uses eight verbs to describe and paint a picture of what identity they were pulling off from. It says, first of all, you call yourself a Jew. It's identity of race. The Jew is a derivative of Judah, which means praise. But the Jewish people lived out the reality that God praised them because they were his chosen people. Even when it didn't make a difference on whether they followed him, even when it didn't make a difference that they disobeyed him. And so it was the identity of a race. Second, you rely on the law. It's the identity of possession of the truth. Because God gave them the law, it became, in their minds, a possession uh, of only the Jewish people. The law was given at Mount Sinai. It was given for all people. And yet the Jewish people themselves found that it was, this is something they possessed. And they did not become the light to the world. They held on to it themselves. Third, they boast in God. The translation leads us to understand that it's the identity of the possession of God himself. That they boasted not of a relationship with God, but a monopoly of God. And they are a, mono, uh, uh, they are a people that only God uh, was part of. Fourth, you know his will. It was a self-righteous act of being at peace with knowing the will of God without obeying the will of God. It was the identity of the intellect that we see studying God's the fact, and, and many say today, it is the fact of that we see studying God's word as the end of what we're called to do instead of the foundation of where we're supposed to start and move on to. And they also had that identity. Fifth, that you approve of what is superior. It's the identity of knowing right and wrong. This, this phrase means that the testing of precious metal to prove value. It's the meaning that the Jews had the ability to know what was right and wrong 
concerning the law of God, and yet it didn't change or move their life. Six, you are instructed by the law. The term is interpreted catechism. It is the teaching by repetition and systematic memorization. But the identity of teaching is the truth that they had, the Jews had at their disposal more teaching of God, and yet it did not change their life. Seventh, you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children. The identity of a guide. The arrogance of believing because your possession of God's law that you become some kind of guru of wisdom that people need to ask and seek out. Yet the Jewish people were living unfaithful to God. In our world today, sometimes we put a pastor at a different position than ourselves. Put him on a pedestal. And I can tell you this, a pastor can't stay on that pedestal. I'm no different than you. We're no different than each other. And then eighth, that you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. It's the identity of religion. It, is, it refers to the superficial religious understanding of the law, which has little or no effect on the Jewish people's lives, and yet they boast of their possession of the great truth of God. Now, I want you to notice something. I noticed this as I was studying it. Did you notice what was missing? Through all this, did you notice what was missing? Through the identity of the race, possession of the truth, possession of God, identity of, of, of uh, intelligence, the identity of knowing right from wrong, the identity of teaching, of guide, and of religion, what was missing? Love, which leads to relationship. Yeah, relationship. That was what was missing. The Jewish people took on the identity of what they possessed, not, listen to me, not what possessed them. Not what possessed them. It's so much like us today. You will invariably talk to people, and when you, when you talk with them, they'll say, well, this is my faith. In fact, I had somebody tell me this week that, you know, this is, this is my soul and my faith experience. And no, that's not your identity. It's not something that you possess. It's not something you can control. It's not something that is of you, for faith is a gift from God, not by work so that no one can boast. You are not a believer because you thought it was a great idea to believe it. You're a believer today because God thought it was a great idea. Think about that. Think about that for you who might be rebelling against God, and he's pursuing you, and he's not giving up on you. And so, identity Identity is the first. It's got to be stripped away. Maybe somebody here today has realized, has my identity really been in Jesus Christ? Or has it been in what I know, what I've possessed, what I have kind of built as my own world? That's exactly what Paul was up against. So how can you test to see if you have a false identity? It comes through the stripping away of hypocrisy. Let's read the verses, 21 through 24. You then, 
who teach others. Do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Jesus said about the Pharisees in Matthew 23, he said, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, and so you must be careful to do everything they tell you to do. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. How do you know that I'm sitting here not practicing what I preach? The first one is, is in verse 21. It's stealing. Stealing represents the hypocrisy of God is not enough. God is not enough. I have to have more. He does not understand my needs. And Isaiah, the 56th of chapter, the 11th verse, they said it, he said it this way. They are dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. They are shepherds who lack understanding. They all turn to their own way and they seek their own gain. Is God enough for you? Is he enough? Or is your life a life of seeking something more? The second one is in verse 22, is adultery. It re represents the hypocrisy of God doesn't satisfy. He doesn't satisfy. Matthew 5, 28 says, but I, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. When the heart determines that the Lord is not enough, and is unable to satisfy the heart, it lusts after something which it was never meant to have. Because he is Jehovah Jireh. He is enough. And we must understand that covers, uh, lust does not just cover one area of lust for a woman or a man. It also is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. What are you seeking after that continues to draw you to it instead of to God. Some of those things the Bible says goes before you and is seen very clearly. Other things follow behind you and nobody knows what you're doing. And so are you stealing? Are you committing adultery? And the third one is, are you, uh, do you abhor idols and rob temples? It is the hypocrisy of God is not just. We have a lot of that going on in our world today where people have picked up a mantle of justice, even in the church, and going outside of God's word and, and, um, and doing things that Christians should never be found doing because they do not believe that God is just. See, it's interesting that the teachers of the law of Pharisees would never go into a idolatrous temple unless it was to rob it. And so it's that kind of attitude. Um, it's, the, it's the people who call themselves Christians that hold up signs that says God hates fags. It's the hatred of Christian people that, that uh, go, that is now crimes against abortion clinics. That is not what God is calling us to do. And so, thinking about stripping away hypocrisy 
What happens? What's happening? Because we are going in a hypocritical way, not, not living out what we say we believe. Verse 24 says it this way. As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. If you think about the Jewish people, they were really, the world was introduced to them when they started going through the desert. The whole arena of the world was wrapped around these millions of people walking through a desert, watching God provide for them, watching him feed them, give them water. And the world is going, this is brand new. This is amazing. What is going on? And yet, and, and even at Pentecost, the world again was gathered, right? And all the languages of the people that were in the city were being spoken. And they're going again, what's going on? What's happening? They're speaking in our language, speaking the word of God in our language. Today, the, the world is watching. The world has been stripped of what it has depended on for years. And they're wondering, do they got something I don't have? Are they trusting in something that I don't have? And when we live our lives in hypocrisy, hidden stuff in our lives, the world sees it. Isaiah 52.5 says, For my people have been taken away for nothing, and those who rule them mock. All day long, my name is constantly blasphemed. Why is the world intensely watching you? Why were they watching the Jewish people? Why do they watch people that say they follow the one true God? It's for one reason. They want to prove that God makes no difference in life. Just like they know their life doesn't really matter. And they want to prove it by you and by me. So, it's identity. We have to strip away our identity and anything on this earth that gives us identity, as the Jewish people did. We have to strip away the hypocrisy. If we're going to preach it, if we're going to say it, if, we, if we're going to call ourselves a Christian, then we ought to be living out our lives in such a way that shows it. And finally, the third one, stripping away the security of the flesh. Or in the Jewish world, to be stripping away the security of the ceremony. Let's go ahead and read that, verse 25 through 27. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you have not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, they will not be regarded as though they were circumcised. The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will, be conde will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are the lawbreakers. 
the Jewish people had put much stock in the physical act of circumcision. It was the physical sign of God's covenant with the Jewish people. Genesis 17 tells us that as he comes to Abraham and he develops the covenant. Let me, let me read it to you. It's verse 9 through 14 of the 17th chapter. It says this. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or brought, bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. There's the transition. Something that happens in the flesh only becomes everlasting when it also is in the heart. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. One of the commentators said that the symbol of the surgery represents, surely represents the sins that can be passed down from generation to generation. God's covenant breaks that chain. Like baptism today, circumcision was a sign of God's covenant for his people. The implication was the sign would point to a life that was changed by God's faithfulness and that obedience to his will would be the new course of life. But the Jewish people, in their superficiality of religion, had put more stock in the ritual of circumcision than a life change by the God of the covenant. I find it interesting that one of the conversations we have in regards to baptism, uh, in, in regards to whether an infant we should baptize an infant or not, or, or whether it's just believer's baptism. I think sometimes the focus is on the act of the person more than it is on the act of the covenantal God. Now, I agree with this, that the baptism of an infant that the CRC celebrates is not enacted in an infant's life until it connects with the faith of that person. As well as the act of a believer's baptism is not real unless it connects with a believer's life. Does that make sense to you? The thing that we assume, and we've had more believer baptisms in this church than we've had infant baptisms in this church, but the thing is, that we assume that an adult is getting baptized because they believe. That's not always true. In fact, in this church, we've experienced people 
who have stood up in front of us, who have been baptized in this church, who are no longer walking with the Lord. Now, if the covenantal God has ordained that, they'll be disciplined and come back someday. But if not, is that believer who's not living out their faith saved because they were baptized? It's putting trust in an exterior action, an exterior sacrament. It is about, let's go on here, because he talks about it. I really like what John Stott does here as he summarizes these verses. Listen to him. It says, circumcision minus obedience equals uncircumcision, while uncircumcision plus obedience equals circumcision. Huh. It's true. It's true. We have to keep it in tension, though, with this. Obedience comes from salvation. Obedience never brings salvation. We have to remember that. We can't get out of balance with that in our lives. Saved, but you know when you're saved, when your heart desires to obey God's will, when your heart desires to seek his will, no matter what the cost, you know that's because the Spirit of God lives inside of you and is seeking that. And so what Paul did here is he does a role reversal. Some of you that have felt judged by Christians ought to celebrate what Paul's doing here. Because judgmental Christians are people that haven't come to a place of their own salvation. You can't give to somebody something you haven't obtained. If forgiveness is not leading your way and love's not leading your life, it's only going to come off as judgmentalism, and that is exactly what Paul is dealing with in chapter 2 here. So he does a total reversal. And that's what this whole circumcision, uncircumcision is, is, is doing. He's addressing that heart of the Jewish leader in saying you say that you trust in your circumcision, in your ceremony, but listen, what is your life showing? Now, he wasn't the first one to come up with this. Jesus did. Do you remember the parable? It was the parable of the two sons. So there's a man with two sons. And he says to the first son, go and work in my field. And the, the son says, I'll do it. But he doesn't. And then the, he says to the second son, go and work in my field. And the second son says, not going to do it. But then he changes his mind. And he goes out into the field. And the question that Jesus asks is, which son did the father's will? The one who changed his mind. Then he says something that's just huge. I mean, it just absolutely blows the Jewish people away. He says, that's exactly why 
The prostitutes and the tax collectors are going ahead of you into heaven, the kingdom of God. Don't trust your exterior religiousness. Don't trust what you say you know when you know you're not living it. Don't trust the ceremonies. And then Paul says it. He just hits, heads, hits it head on. Let's go on. Verse 28. This is, this is huge and foundational for the rest of Romans. Verse 28 says, A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is what? The heart. The heart. Circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Now, this is important for you to get the rest of the book of Romans because you're gonna, you're, it's going to come back again where Paul's going to talk about even phrases that people have been confused about is, is that, that every Israelite will be saved. And people go, oh, I don't get that. I mean, I see all this rebellion. I see all this thing going on. Oh, in, in, in the long run, they're just all going to be saved? No. No. Those who are true Jews, who are true Israelites. Who are they? Right here. Right here. See, he redefines the Jewish identity. The first thing that he does is he takes the Jew back to the Old Testament and reminds him that we are not spiritually circumcised because of what happens to the body. We're spiritually circumcised because of what God is doing in our hearts. Deuteronomy 36 says this, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. We can't fake Christianity. And I appreciate it when people look at me. I'm not offended when somebody says, you know what, I don't believe what you believe. I had that happen this week. I don't believe what you believe. I can't believe what I believe without the Spirit of God living inside of me. I can't do it. It is the Spirit that brings the truth. It's God that brings the truth. And so, Paul is saying, and he was teaching us, that there's a, te a difference between grandma, the law, and Numa, the spirit. And it is that there is, the law can only bring you up to the door of understanding a reality that is beyond human understanding. But the spirit, Numa, can take you in to understand something that is not understandable humanly. And so there's four realities out of this passage that Paul brings forward here. First of all, a, a true Jew is one who is changed inwardly. 
Psalm 37, 30 through 31 says, The mouth of the righteous utter wisdom, and their tongues speak what is just. The law of their God is on their hearts, in their hearts, and their feet do not slip. A true believer's change is inward. Second, true identity is in the heart, not in the flesh. Romans 10, 9 through 10. I think it was spoken at a church, uh, at a reception, if I'm not mistaken, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For it is with your heart that you, are, that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess or profess your faith and are saved. God is the justifier of our heart. God, the, the just God, is not unjust because he forgives. Because his justice goes through the cross. And through the blood of Jesus Christ, he's able to forgive. Listen to me, you unbeliever. There is no other way for you to be justified. There is no other way for your life to be changed. It starts from the heart inside out. You do not believe because there's not a heart change. Today, if, you're, if the Spirit of God is speaking inside of your heart saying, I get what pastor's saying about the fact that, the fact that this stuff is not, I have not always totally understood this, and you know, I just don't really know if I really believe this. Today, if you're being convicted of that, give way to the Spirit and say, all right, I need you. Oh, I need you in my heart. Come inside of me. That is what Paul was hoping for for his Jewish believers. That, you know, he wasn't just sticking a finger at him and saying, you got a false identity. You are hypocritical and you are depending on your, on your, on your um, ceremonies instead of on the true God. He wasn't condemning them. He was opening their eyes up to the fact of saying, stop living in the fake and start living in the real because there's a real God who really loves you and sent his son. Open your eyes. Let him change your heart. Third thing he teaches in here is that true identity is done by the spirit of God. Romans 8, he'll go on and he'll expand it. Romans 8 is just a huge expansion on this. But one of the, one of the verses, verse 2, says, Through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. Taylor Swift knows she hasn't been set free. She knows it. She knows it. She says it out loud. And yet, does she see the one who can set her free? Do you? You know it. You know it. You've tried to find your identity in all other kind of places. You know it. You've, you've lived hypocritically. You've said, these are the values I want to live by. I just can't live them out. You know it. You've put some stock in something that's happened in your, in, your, in, in, in your life growing up. Like maybe mom and dad were Christians. And so you kind of put stock in the fact, I was, I was raised in a Christian home. Whoopee! 
If you do not receive the, the one who can change your life, it makes no difference. It makes no difference. So, the true change is inward. Identity is in the heart, not the flesh. True identity is done by the Spirit of God inside of you, sets you free. And fourth, true identity seeks the praise of God only. Now, if you remember earlier, I talked about the fact that, the, that, that Judah um, sounds like the Hebrew word praise. And here, Paul calls out the Jewish people who have been thinking that God is praising us because he's chosen people. And he's saying, that is not it. It's that your life is changed and transformed and you find yourself praising God for what he's done in your life and how he's changed you. 1 Corinthians 10, 18 says, For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. People live their whole life looking for, com uh, for um, commendation. Looking for praise from other people, looking for praise for their jobs, looking for, for some kind of exterior thing that makes them feel like they have worth and they have value. But that's not the one. You're not going to find it there. Taylor Swift is never going to find it in the applause. Never. It is in the one who commends you. It's in the one that you've come to know as your Lord and Savior that, that you, it was in the song. He's the one. It's in, it is in Zephaniah, um, no, yeah, Zephaniah 3, 17. That is, somebody say that to me. Come on. He's, yeah, he sings praises over us. That's where, where the, the um, commendation comes from. That's, that's what satisfies the soul. Outside of that, you're going to live unsatisfied. Do you get that? Paul is saying that. And so, as we conclude this chapter, I wonder if the Lord is speaking to you today. Do you know for sure what your identity is set in? Do you see the hypocrisy of your life? And have you put your confidence in the acts of the flesh instead of the spirit? I had a privilege and honor this week to meet with a young man. I have been praying to meet with him for months, months. And out of the blue, I got a phone call. And, uh, and he is struggling with a sin. And so as we sat down at the table, we started talking. And guess what? I didn't talk about the sin. I talked about the identity. And I said, we live in a world that is sexually discipling us. It, we live in a world where where man is saying God no longer is right in the way that he, that he has set a man and a woman together in marriage. And so we have all kinds of relationships outside of that reality. We are being sexually discipled. And we are being told that our sexuality is our identity. And it is a lie from hell. 
We got done. And he said these words to me. He said, yeah, I was a little concerned about meeting with you, a Christian, today. He said, because I have been condemned and looked down on by Christians. And he says, quite honestly, I've condemned myself. I've condemned myself. Because I know this is wrong. And he said, but today, I don't feel any condemnation. I feel loved by you. I started crying. Because that's exactly what I wanted to get across. It's not my job to change you. My job is only to tell you the truth of Jesus Christ and what he's done in my life and how amazing he is. It's not our job to, to make converts. It's our job to make disciples. You know what? There is, a, there is an evil entity out there that is making disciples every day. Isn't it time the church start making disciples? We say that we believe in Jesus Christ. We say that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And yet, do we spend time with others and make disciples? God will do the converting. We just got to tell them the truth. Our life has to emulate the truth. And that was Paul's heart. And that's where he was coming from. Do you hear it today? Through the Spirit of God, do you hear him? Let it be me. Lord, start with me. Let me change. Let my heart find its true identity in you. Let my heart get rid of all hypocrisy. All of it. All of it. Change me from the inside out. Amen? Stand with me. It was God's will for you guys to be here. Oh, I... Pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, we come at the end of chapter 2, and our hearts, I pray, are moved by the fact that the Apostles Paul's heart, moved by the Holy Spirit, so loved, so loved the Jewish people. In fact, we're going to hear later on in, in, in um, Romans that he would, if it be possible, be cursed himself and go to hell so that his, so that his people would be saved. He was that passionate about the Jewish people. And so, Father, I pray that I have represented that passion of your spirit in front of these dear people uh, in that way. And that, Father, your word goes forth out of my mouth in a way that our hearts are moved to have that kind of desire to be people who follow you, not obeying because of some coarseness or force out of you, and realize that you are the way, the truth, and life, and there is no true life outside of you. And so obedience comes just out of response of new life, new birth inside of a heart. And so, Father, I pray that today. I pray that, Father, that if someone's been convicted of hypocrisy, preaching one thing but living another thing, that, Father, even today, they'll repent and they'll realize they've been looking for satisfaction and for comfort in another place instead of you. And that's always going to produce shallowness 
and emptiness. And Father, I pray that uh, none of us, this thing called church is changing so much that, Lord, forgive us for maybe holding on to the way that it was done in the past as though it's some kind of ceremony and some kind of process that we have to hold on to. We have to hold on to your word. That has to stay absolutely true. We need to be conservative in scripture, liberal in love. And so, Father, just, just teach us what that looks like. Teach us how to do that well. Teach us, Father, how to walk alongside people. I, I, my mind's eye just goes around this room right now, and I know there's a young man that's, been, that's being discipled in another city um, on Zoom, and I just pray for his life right now. I pray that, Father, that he'll, he'll just get out of the identity of all the things that he's trying to dream of, and he'll, he'll, he'll receive your identity. I think of women that are meeting on weekends and, and, and being discipled, and I just pray for, Father, that you'll move in their lives. I pray that, Lord, more and more people will come together. For, Father, um, we need to walk with each other. In this world, we'll have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. You're our overcomer, and you do it that by, by our love for you and our love for each other. And so, Lord, continue to grow that. We give you praise and honor and glory for this day. In the precious name of Jesus, all God's people said, amen. amen.